And as we went into lockdown, I, I actually painted more of them. And I, it was, I guess, a bit of a motif for being isolated with the whole COVID and what that was like. And it just, the concept behind painting that sole tree in a landscape by itself, doing its own thing, I don't know, it just, it felt right. following is a conversation with Tom Adair. Tom is an artist based in Melbourne. He's exhibited interstate and internationally and is currently represented by Nanda Hobbs Gallery in Sydney. On the podcast, we discuss some of the concepts and techniques that he works with. As an artist myself, I find candid conversations like this informative and inspiring for my own practice. If you like this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. First off, I've got to say thank you. I've gotten a lot of compliments on the logo since I started the podcast. And for those who don't know, Tom designed the logo for me and makes the podcast look a lot more professional than it probably is at the moment. So appreciate that. My pleasure. Uh, how you been? Good, thanks. Just um, having a bit of time off over Christmas and New Year and trying to regather my thoughts and start 2021. How much time are you taking off over the break? Finished up um, about the 17th or 18th of December and hopefully back in the studio on Monday. And when you say finished up, what were you working on? Uh, finishing commissions for um, a few clients up in Sydney through Nanda Hobbs. Um, I think I had three or four um, commissions that I set up for pre-Christmas delivery. Will you, will you make most of your sales through commission work or...? Uh, through exhibitions? It's probably 50-50 at the moment. So I'll have a, a show. Um, generally, they're fairly sold out um, and people that miss out generally jump on a commission list and commission uh, extra pieces from uh, things from the show. Did the last show completely sell out? Uh, the last, yeah, my last two shows up in Sydney at Nanda Hobbs are both sold out. Nice. Do you find... Commission work, are you given quite a specific brief by? It varies from client to client, but I I like the newness of painting shows because you get to imagine and create things that are in your head that have been floating around for a while. So having that newness to get that down on paper and realise it is really exciting. Um I still enjoy commissions. It's just, I think they've got a, from each show, they've got a, a, a limited shelf life because it's a series and I don't want to keep painting that series forever. 
and they feel well at least for me they feel a bit more more of a chore per se than uh, work that that you create for a series I find when I'm doing work and I know that it can go in any direction because it's not dependent on the happiness of a client it's a lot more freeing yeah there's definitely an element of I wouldn't say a chore but I think there's an element of expectation when a client sees a work sometimes they have it depends on the client but some people will see a particular work that I've painted previously and say I, I want this and unless it's basically that image it's almost like they're not happy they're not they're not willing to trust in my creative ability to to recreate something and and the, depo- and the deposit puts a bit more pressure on that as well Def- as soon as you put finances against any painting it it changes the the dynamic of it it i find that really interesting how you can bring money into the scenario and it i don't know it's like they're your boss or you you answer to them or it hinders your creativity it does a little bit yeah maybe because you second guess yourself i'm not sure but there's definitely an element where as soon as money's entered into the equation it's it's a different different type of thing that you have to tackle it's interesting as well because i feel i paint better when that pressure is not there so if i'm making the work uh, without a specific buyer in mind it's going to be better anyway whereas it's, it's, it's free you, mm. yeah it's almost like you shouldn't take commissions and then just create a whole bunch of work it's just like having a show i mean people buy the show so is there a consistent theme in your work um probably facades would be one so the appearance of what what things are from a distance versus up close and that that different reality that you see and what what's real and what's not uh, and then i guess that plays into illusion as well which i know you've spoken about a little bit as well so there's a bit of that and then um is that is that why you chose uh, architecture um, as your initial subject matter because it's a literal facade and it ties into that idea of it's definitely well. um it plays into it it i wouldn't say it's the only reason it's um architecture's come as an influence for me through previous career working for um, an Australian furniture company in product development. And I think having been exposed to architecture and interior design, that became a motif for, for things that I would see. And, you know, the, the flash car parked out the, out the front of the, the fancy house with, um, you know, all these bells and whistles. It's, it's, it can be different when you get up close and you, you see what what's interesting within the family dynamic, the financial reality of what people are actually living uh, and the social status that they, they try and project, project yeah, out into the public. So I think there's an interesting thing with that in housing and, and um, architecture. Well, that's interesting because I think you, you portray that in the literal sense of... Um, the subject matter, the house with the car out the front, the palm tree. And then in what I think is the strongest aspect of your work is, uh, as you said, the display of the illusion of what you're doing. So with the dotted airbrush technique, the CMYK, it hits a perfect sweet spot between abstraction and representation so that the viewer is almost aware of the illusion as it's being used on them. And I think it's a really uh, flexible and interesting concept. Um, 
are you going to push this concept further moving forward or? Um, the, I'm starting to play around with a few ideas for my next show. It hasn't been hundred percent confirmed, but it will be later in 2021. Um, at Nanda Hobbs. Yep. It, I haven't got a, a lockdown theme yet, but I know I'd like to draw on more personal experiences and things that I know about um, and push that into the work as well. So that the facades was very strong thematically in my first show at Metro. Um, and then I, I involved a little bit more um, of my, I guess, concern for climate change and environmental impact within um, my second show at Nanda Hobbs in, oh, it wasn't my second show, it was my third or fourth. And that's the more um, recent one, the first, Yeah, it was my first big solo show at Nanda Hobbs. Um, and that I shot that in a way, so I photographed the, the paintings before I actually painted them. Um, I shot that in a way that it made the landscape and the architecture look like you couldn't tell who was more dominant. And to me, I think that was a really interesting um, way to look at how what humans' impact is on the environment and climate change and, and that and, sort of thing. And what should be prioritised, the existence of the human, which symbolised by the building, or whether nature is more important. Correct. And, and who's taking over, who's in control, because it was in a, a harsh desert landscape, which is very rugged to live in. Like building houses in that, that sort of climate is, it's harsh. And there's a massive juxtaposition between the nature and, and the buildings as well. Yeah. With your home series, your first solo show at um, Metro, did you structure the composition to imitate uh, real estate agency photos? Because I noticed in a lot of the titles it would, uh, you'd sort of reference uh, the way a real estate agency would advertise a house, you know, like golden opportunity with city views and stuff. And, and if that was deliberate, what was the purpose of that? Um, it was the first show I'd ever had. So I think coming up with titles was, um, was a new thing for me. And I, I found the idea of what, how glitzy and glamorous real estate titles are almost humorous because they're not necessarily the truth. They're just a really glossy way of making someone want to buy a house. Like a facade. In yeah, words. They're, they're pretty fake. So I, th I, I ran through um, realestate.com and grabbed a whole bunch of titles that, that I thought were fitting for the pieces that I painted. And how would you usually source the imagery for these shows i know for home you were focusing on suburban melbourne for the miami show uh, you went to florida uh, to miami uh, do you go on uh, trips and take photos of these things or how do you do research leading up to a, a new series usually i've got a bit of an idea in my head about the look and feel of what I want a show to look like, the colours, colour palette, um, the vibrancy, I guess, of what, what the show, the, the, the scale of it and textures. Um, so once I've done that, I'll, I'll sort of have a bit of a Google search and um, find locations around 
anywhere around the world that that are sort of fitting to those those images that I've got floating around in my head. So the palette and idea comes before the location. Generally, it's all, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't say trend based, but there's definitely some, like it's a personal trend, I guess. There's just textures and colors that I'm drawn to that I need to try and bring those into my painting. And, and if it's um, trendy, it's of its time as well. So there's, it's not necessarily wrong to uh, follow what's you know, of interest in. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's a, an interiors trend or anything. It's not, not a specific trend that I, I look at or follow. It's just, um, it's probably more personal than anything. When did you make the jump from monochromatic pieces to the CMYK palette? And just for the listeners, could you explain what the CMYK palette is? Yeah, so I started, I'll start at the beginning. I started with the um, the monochrome halftone, which is similar to a newsprint or a um, single color screen print. And it's blown up to a scale that I can paint uh, with an airbrush. And that's why everything looks like dots. Correct, yeah. Um, so if you zoomed into a newsprint up close, that, that would be what you see. Um, so I started that about three years ago and uh, over the course of probably 18 months, I started to, to work on what it, what it would look like if I added extra colours within the dots and um, through experience working with like offset printers and commercial printers through my previous careers, uh, career jobs. Um, I knew about color separation and how colors interacted with each other. So if you put a yellow and a blue together, it creates green and, um, you know, yellow and pink, it creates orange and you get these different colors depending on how you layer it. And over the, over a period of about 18 months, I worked out how to paint a four-layer um, CMYK palette, which which is um, CMYK stands for cyan, yellow, magenta, and black. And with those four colors, you can make up any possible photo. Yeah. So when those colors combine, like in a magazine print, it's almost like going looking at a newspaper and looking at a magazine. It's just similar concept it's just more colors and when they those colors combine it creates a full color image and was that a to what i was saying earlier about the cmyk again sort of revealing uh, the illusion as it's been used on the audience was that why you chose the cmyk palette because it was such a uh, obvious illusion but at the same time it, it conveys quite a realistic representational image there's definitely yeah, I would say so. That's part of it. And then I also like the abstract nature of it. So the really in large dots, when you get up close to it, it's just a it's a jumble of dots and mess and it's ordered chaos, I guess, but you can see the the imperfections and the drips and the dots, like the, the overspray and the softness of it. When you step back and all those things, all the imperfections fade away and the, the colours combine, it it creates that that crisp image. Mm. I really like how that that interplay between viewing the image up close and then how it draws you backwards and forwards into the image. Yeah, you can move around it. That's yeah. I've noticed that when I've been to some of your shows before. It's really interesting how you have this ability to 
manoeuvre the audience around your pictures. If up close, they convey a different uh, meaning and a different feeling. And as you sort of, even as you walk uh, past them from one angle, uh, the dots will coalesce slightly differently to how they uh, form when you're on the right, for example. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's really for just straight up painting. It's quite an interactive uh, technique that you that you're using. You began your artistic career, uh, quote unquote, as a graffiti artist, street artist. Did that give you an advantage when it came to things like scale? And I know, I mean, a lot of your um, paintings today are quite large. I wouldn't say scale is not that I'm aware of. I wouldn't say scale is really something that the graffiti brought into my work. Um, but having said that, maybe it did. Maybe I'm not scared to do large pieces. Um, the one thing that it definitely taught me was speed. So using um, using the airbrush, I'm, I'm able to paint pretty large paintings, um, you know, like a 1.5 by two meter painting over about two weeks. Is that why you use the airbrush to begin with, just because of the efficiency of it? No, I really like the softness of it. That's probably why I was really drawn to it. So um, Howard Arkley was one of my inspirations that uh, as an artist that I looked at, you know, in, in high school around year 10 and did an airbrush course uh, and I've always been fascinated by his work, but the one thing that stands out to me about his work is when you get up close to it, you see what looks like a crisp black line is actually beautiful and soft. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that with his work, actually. It sort of uh, diffuses the closer you get to it. Yeah. Uh, but similar to your work from afar, it coalesces into quite a straight edge representational image. Yeah, so that that quality of the, the soft line is probably the main reason I use an airbrush. Um, and that came from Howard Arkley. And then I went and did a, an airbrush course and um, learned how to use them properly. What do you think shaped some of your interests as an artist? Where do you find inspiration? Uh, why did you, aside from uh, the concepts behind your other series, why do you think you were drawn to painting uh, palm trees and houses and things like that i guess um i'm drawn to them because they're they're attractive it's beautiful it's great design uh it's nature they're just they're, they're pleasing things to look at and the link between the the facade and representing that in a way that is commercially saleable i find a nice way to to bring those two things together. Mm, so the beauty of the picture serves a conceptual interest aside from just being commercially viable. It actually plays into the idea of illusion again and drawing the viewer in. Yeah. Is that why you also use neon lights? Is that kind of like a reference to, I don't know, flies being drawn into a light and the sort of mesmerising nature of that? There's definitely something alluring about neon lights. Um, they've been around for, I think it's over a hundred years now. Are they that, I don't know they're that old. Pretty sure it was around the twenties that they were, they were invented. Um, they have a light quality that is like nothing else. You, LED can't even get close to it. 
What's different about it? And how does a neon light actually work? I'm not even... So it's a glass tube and it's hand bent over hot flame and then each end of the tube will get uh, an electrode which basically transfers the electricity from outside the tube into inside the tube. The gas is pumped into the tube before it's sealed and then once the electric current goes from one end to the other, it creates a circuit and when the when the circuit's created, the gas inside the tube becomes a conductor of the electricity and that's yeah. what ignites the gas to become a different colour wow. or to turn on and then glow. Is that quite an expensive thing to add to your work? It's less expensive than people think. How much How much does it cost to, what, like a, a one metre strip of neon? One stick, probably, like if it had no bends in it. 100 150 yeah, not too bad but then you've got transformers and the wiring and there's a few other different elements like the designing of it and components and the shape and all those things that come into play but it sounds pretty bougie yeah it does it's it's less scary than people think it is mm. who are some of your favorite artists from the past not necessarily who've inspired the uh, concepts you're working with but just in general who do you want to um it seems to ch- it's changed over the over the course of the last two or three years as I've become more aware of art history and the importance of certain artists and periods and different artists. Uh, some that have can stayed consistent, obviously Howard Arkley, which I mentioned before, um, James Rosenquist. I really like his mm. large scale murals. Is the, I don't know the way that that he brings in his work and like his career work into his art form and combines that, I think is really nice. And that kind of is similar to what you've done with your career as well. In some ways, I'd never thought of that, but... Bringing yeah. in your career experience and... Yeah. Who else? Um, obviously, Melbourne-based Darren Sylvester. I've always loved his work. Mm. The um, show that was on at NGV at the Ann Potter Centre, I think it was. Um, that was when I was first exposed to his work and... He was one of my teachers at uh, VCA. Yeah. Really nice guy. Really I was nice guy. absolutely blown away by by the way that he brings together a theme and conceptualizes all these ideas in what seem like almost simple photographs. There's just so much depth when you dig into it and yeah. you get behind the, the curtain of what they really mean. Last year, like after I'd done my first show – with the chromatones of the CMYK, I, I came across an artist called Chuck Close, who's an American painter. And I found out he actually did, it wasn't a halftone technique, but he actually painted similar um, using a grid grid technique to paint, painting like full color paintings yeah. with CMYK and monochrome. Yeah, and he, I've, I've seen him do it. He's almost got a sort of five centimeter by five centimeter square, and then he times that by 500 and it. Again, similar sort of from afar, looks like this sort of monumental, almost photographically realistic portrait, but it's just these blobs of blobs. Mm. That that's more of his recent work, the earlier stuff, which uh, I was, don't know how much of it is around, but um, was, was more very just detailed, photorealistic. Yeah, and, yeah. Which at the time was not being done and almost he scorned was, upon. He was seen as a bit of a dinosaur, I think. Yeah. Uh, and painting portraits as well. Yeah, at a time when it wasn't the fashion. It's interesting how representational painting went through a bit of a dark age at, 
in sort of middle to the latter part of the 20th century, but do you feel it's having a bit of a resurgence in the last 10 years or so? What was it, sorry? The representational <coughs> painting is sort of having a bit of a resurgence uh, in the art scene in general. I mean, you've got people like Jenny Savile, uh, he's you know, uh, one of the most famous artists in the world and she's a figurative representational painter. Uh, Lucien Freud, you know, obviously died 10 years ago, but sort of he's now being appreciated as one of the great... Um, giants of his time. Yeah, I definitely think it's a strong part in the, the art scene at the moment. Mm. Who are some of your favourite artists working today, aside from Darren Sylvester, of course? Um, and I guess do you make a habit of going to a lot of uh, art openings? And It's definitely been hard in the last year, mm. but... Um, yeah, I, I'd like to go to as many art openings as I can possibly get to. Um, Ed Rushka. Um, What's his name? Ed. Ed Rushka. Ed Rushka. No, I don't know his word. So he did a bunch of um, petrol stations across America, painted um, like quite perspective, stylized images of oh, petrol yeah. stations. Looking at them now. Mid-century also does some really great pieces with um, quirky text. Now oh, they look cool. I've heard graphic pieces. Um, similar to that would be uh, Barbara Kruger. Look up her work as well. Which I, I actually really love the scale and the simplicity of the um, the text that she overlays with with those pieces to to get across her messages and what she believes in. You've got a interest in representational art combined with text. I've noticed it's sort of a through line in uh, certainly the artists that you're interested in is you like incorporating text and well, not you specifically, but you like that kind of combination between uh, the advertising space and uh, the traditional art space. Is yeah, that, it's almost like, yeah, a little bit poppy. Mm. in some ways uh, I used to before I got really heavily into art I used to do a lot of artwork that involved text and I felt like it became a bit of a crutch for me so I, I've always not included it but at some point I think it will probably come back into my work it's hard to do without looking derivative of something else which I imagine is why you've you haven't done it yet just because you want to be ready for it. Yeah, when I do it, it needs to be... Correct. It needs to be right. Uh, we just glossed over there being no art openings this year. Did you find going into lockdown particularly difficult or was it... I mean, I found personally that being isolated is pretty much how artists work and didn't seem uh, too difficult for me personally in that sense. Did you find it quite hard going into sudden isolation not not from a work aspect and i was actually excited about it which probably sounds a little bit dark but um but next used to get lots of work done yeah I, I basically locked myself in the studio and just had nothing else to do except for go to the studio and work and paint and just get busy so i was good at, but i was lucky that i had my own studio my own space so i had a an escape from the confines of my own house where I was living with my wife and um, didn't have to be stuck there 24 hours a day. So it gave me good reason to get out and... That's a dream studio as well. 
Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good space. Do you drink a lot of coffee while you paint and do you have a specific diet that sort of gets you in the right frame of mind to paint or you don't really um, give a shit either way? Not, I wouldn't say I drink a lot of coffee. The main thing for me would be um, training, like exercise and getting that diet side of things right. And once I've got that right, then that flows into my um, energy levels and how I'm feeling. Well, it's interesting because the stereotype of an artist has always been the physically self-destructive, chain-smoking drug addict. And there's almost a sense, albeit misguided, I think, that you can't be a true artist unless you fit this stereotype. Uh, whereas you, on the other hand, as you said, are quite conscious of your health. Um, it's just interesting to see that as a juxtaposition to the general stereotype. Yeah, it's definitely um, definitely a thing. Artists, the idea of an artist, I guess I feel like they need to struggle to create good, authentic work. But Do you think that's a complete myth, though? Or? I'd like to think so. Yeah. I'd almost like to think the opposite's true. Yeah, you you think clearer when you're you you have better ideas once you've taken care of your health and exercising and stuff. Oh, much better. Mm. Um, not only do the ideas come better, but you can I can work through the ideas quicker, faster, put things into reality rather than just thinking about them. It, it actually they eventuate. Um, it's like going to work. I mean, if you want to be a successful artist, you need to turn up every day and do the work to to be successful. And treat the body like a temple while you do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no there's no difference, I don't believe, to working as an artist and working in an office. If if that's your career path, you need to turn up every day and do the work to get better and improve on where you are and where you want to go. You've never smoked cigarettes before, have you? You've never been a smoker? No, I have. You have yep. back in the day. Yep. Did you ever find that? I don't know what it is about it, but it just feels like whether you're reading a book or sketching, whatever, not doesn't necessarily enhance your performance, but it just is part and parcel of the. Yeah, you feel like you're in a French design movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you just sort of picture Picasso and you know chain smoking. Yep. And, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It was. Uh... It's probably the best advertising for cigarette companies ever. Yeah. Was. People like Picasso. Yeah, there's definitely a romanticism about it, but um, but it's done. I anyway. know. Yeah, I know that it's not right for me, and I know when I stay healthy, that's when I do my best work. Yeah. So you had no formal education as an artist. No, none at all. Did you draw much when you were younger? Um, I remember drawing a fair bit, but it wasn't. I don't think it was like freestyle drawing. It was more um, process sort of, um, I guess, perspective drawings and more realistic. So and and did, that's kind of where you get your interest in uh, more tightly composed images such as uh, Ed Rushka's work. and. Um, I th- yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. I've never been like a free freehand just draw whatever comes into your head. I find that quite challenging, but it's something I'm working on um, over the course of this year. Uh, I was, so as far as drawing goes when I was younger, I did that a fair bit, but I was just creative in general. So building things. So I was always out in the garage making stuff. What kind of stuff would you build? Um, furniture. 
bunk beds. And is that how you got go-karts. Is that how you initially got into working for a furniture store? And uh, no, so I studied fashion, um, finished that, and started a, a label, a fashion label, with two two mates, and did that for about four and a half years. And then once that finished up, not a result of our own um, doing. I worked for my uncle's company, which is in home textiles. And I did that for about six or seven years. So I got to know the transition from fashion to homewares is it's a nice um, segue because of the textile knowledge and the way fabrics work and all those sort of um, technical details. And then when I finished up with my uncle, I went to um, Jardin and did uh, homewares product development for them. Right. You mentioned that you're wanting to work on your free self drawing. What are you going to do for that? Are you just going to are you doing life drawing this year? Or are you just going to? Um, so this year I've decided I'm going to go 100% sober, so not going to drink for the whole year. Really? Yep. Which I don't know. I didn't drink for a lot of last year, so I mean, people. People were smashing it last year. Yeah, people. People <laughs> always. Um, look at you funny when you say you're not drinking, but I don't find it much of a big deal. Um, so I've decided not to do it at all this year. Um, and with that extra time and productivity, I'm going to read an hour every day. I follow up on art history and do more research on artists I like and techniques and basically just educate myself because uh, I have that lack of art education. Um, and then on top of that, I'm also going to do an hour of drawing every day. So just try and get better at that. It's interesting you said that you haven't had a formal education as an artist and you're relatively you don't you don't know much about art history yet. I kind of see that as a in some some regards as a bit of an advantage in the art scene. Uh, even Francis Bacon sort of famously said when he was younger that not going to art school was the best thing he ever did because he wasn't polluted by all these other ideas. I didn't realise he didn't go to art school. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think he just sort of drifted around Europe for a, a few years. He actually worked as a uh, interior designer, I believe, for right. uh, five or ten years and then sort of just emerged in 1949 with that three figures at the base of a crucifixion. Yep. Um, so hopefully you've got a similar career trajectory to Francis Bacon. If I could get half of that, I would be... Over the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Is he one of your favourite artists as well? Definitely would be in the top 20, mm. which sounds like a lot, but there's just so many artists to, That's a, no. to look up to. It's, um, he's definitely an amazing painter. What books are you reading at the moment? Um, in the last 20 pages of Shock of the New with Robert Hughes. Loving it. Yeah. It, that book is... I really set the landscape for um, my understanding of art history. If you could read one book to give yourself the most sort of complete idea of the art world, I think that's the one I'd recommend to people. Yep. Yeah, it was recommended by um, someone I spoke to early in 2020 when I was doing some work around um, the framework of, of my work and they suggested reading that and I been reading it over the course of the last six months. It's a, it's a bit of a monster book, but um, 
absolutely love it. And worth even worth rereading, I think, as yeah. well. It's just a it's almost like the Sydney Harbour by the time you get to the end you need to go back to the start and redo it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good and I, I even just go back to it sometimes just to sort of rejig my inspiration and sort of sounds pretentious but kind of, you know, affirm why I paint and things like that. Who else are you reading? Um, I read a book called On Photography by, I think it's Sonia Sontag. Mm, uh, Susan Sontag. Susan Sontag. Mm. Um, just to try and get a bit of an idea around the the landscape of photography and um, how that plays into my work and understand that a little bit more than, than just taking photos for the sake of taking photos. Um, Do you consider yourself a photographer as well as a painter? Or is the photography just used as a means for the paintings? I wouldn't say I'm a photographer. I know how to use a camera pretty well. But I've never done commercial photo shoots or anything like that. I do it for my own personal personal use for art. So I think um, it's just another medium that I, that I use. It's interesting as a medium, though, because... It's almost because a photo, every, every photo someone takes is representational to the exact same degree. It's, it captures reality perfectly. It, I've always thought photography is quite hard as a medium because it's hard to distinguish yourself and your own style because you don't have, you've only got things like composition, scale, uh, you know, exposure. exposure and stuff to distinguish why this is a photo by you, there's less. I mean, with painting... I've always had the same thing about photography. It's like, how, how different can it be? you got mm. a camera, you press, you know, you got your settings and everything, you press snap and... Whereas I know that's painted by Tom Adair because it's got the dotted airbrush technique or it's got the neon lights or, you know, that's a bacon because it's got that, you know, swish of the brush and yeah. stuff. So it's much harder, I've always thought, to distinguish yourself as a photographer. It's funny, the... Um, I... I don't know why or what it is, but I have a particular way of adjusting images that make them my own. Like I know when I've shown people photographs, they're like, oh, I know that's your photo. What do you do to them? Um, oh, it's just a um, post-production in um, a photo, like photography software. But there's, you know, the different levels and blacks and contrast and those sort of things that, you can adjust. I think that's where you can get a bit of your own handwriting within photography. Although I've never actually printed any of my photography as a print. It's always it's been awesome. used as reference for painting. Mm. And I've even just your Instagram account. So well produced and you're quite pedantic with only using high quality uh, photos of your work and yourself at work. And have you found that's, been a great help for getting your name out there and getting commissions, getting clients? I think it comes across as professional. Um, I just like to produce good content. So if people do happen to stumble across my page, the work that I've got on there is well documented and clear for people to understand what it is, what it looks like, try and get across the idea of the, the dots up close and from a distance and what, what how that all works. Um, my personal belief is quality over quantity on Instagram, but you know, each their own. There's 
a whole bunch of different people doing different things. So mm. it's interesting as well. You you hear that in the podcast world as well. People say you know just consistency regardless of the quality of the podcast. But I'm much more on your side of the fence with that. It's just make sure it's right before you upload it. And same with uh, my own art as well. What's been your favourite place to visit as far as a research vacation goes? Favourite place? Was the Palm Springs trip for chromatones? Yeah, I've been there twice for Palm Springs. So I guess you could almost say that's my favourite because I've been there twice. But it wasn't Um, as exciting the second time. The second time it definitely wasn't as exciting, um, although there was less... I spent less time there because I knew what I wanted to document, how I wanted to show certain features of it, um, that the architecture within the desert. Probably the Chromatone show would definitely be top of the list for locations that I visited. So we started in Palm Springs and then uh, that was only a couple of days and then went to Joshua Tree, which I found incredible. The It's like an alien landscape, new the sense of scale of the boulders and the Joshua trees and the skies and the colours. It's almost got a hallucinogenic quality as well. It like certainly the, does. But, yeah. also, but also the way you paint them. I mean, Joshua Tree is famous as the place we're going and tripping balls. But the way you paint them, the way your images, as we were saying before, change, the way you move around them almost has that so hallucinogenic got, yeah, quality they've to got them. A, they've got a bit of that. They sort of breathe a little bit and change as you, you move, yeah. Talk to me a bit about the isolated tree pieces that you were doing uh, during the year as well yeah, from, I, from the Palm Springs trip. I did did one of those, oh, maybe there might have been two in that show in... The Chromatones show. Yeah, in, in May. And for some reason I was, I've always been drawn to them just as a, a landscape style an, image with, with an that. isolated tree in yeah, the yeah without yeah. the architecture um and as we went into lockdown i i actually painted more of them and i it was i guess a bit of a motif for being isolated with the whole covid and and what that was like and it just the concept behind painting that sole tree in a landscape by itself doing its own thing I don't know it just it felt right and and I like that it wasn't completely literal either you know you let the tree stand in as a substitute for um, I mean if you'd had a specific person standing by themselves it's a little harder to associate with as uh, the viewer whereas if it's a tree it sort of uh, it depersonalizes it to the extent that that tree can be a substitute for anyone who's looking at it yeah mm. Yeah, so I really enjoyed painting those. Done, I've done a few more of those towards the um, the back half of the year after I'd, I'd posted a few of them. Do you know what you're going to be working on in the next sort of after you've taken your break? Uh, nothing concrete yet, but I've, I've definitely want to try and bring in more of my personal experience and personal knowledge on um, things that, that matter to me in the world. Um, what matters to you? Uh, health. Um, movement, nutrition. Um, I mean, indigenous matters. There's there's an element of that that I'd like to try and 
Um, I don't know when the right time is to do it, but is, is that because you're so preoccupied with the landscape? Do you think it would help to have a uh, greater knowledge of Indigenous Australian history? And um, I th- that might have been the trigger to learn more about it. Um, I think just through speaking to people, it interests me to find out more of the truths behind what colonisation and settlement and everything look like. Uh, I've been given some books by a friend, uh, his name's Kane, and he's, he grew up in Catherine and he's quite well-spoken and well-experienced and knowledgeable on Indigenous um, communities up in the Northern Territory. And just speaking to him, you get a sense of um, passion that, that he shows for that culture. And it's something that I feel like I don't know enough about. I wasn't taught enough about it and it's never really been a priority, but it's something that's becoming more and more important to me. You'd, um, you'd also have a lot to learn as far as depicting landscapes outside of uh, the Western canon of art. You'd, you know, you'd have a lot to learn about how to rep- represent the, the landscape aside from what we've learned in traditional art history books. Yeah, there's, there's just so much that we can learn from and not, not take in a way that is stealing and passing off as our own, but there's just so much that we could learn from Collaborate. Indigenous culture, yeah, that, that we can share and that needs to be common knowledge amongst Australians that I just I don't feel is at the right level yet. And I feel Indigenous Australian art, of course it's appreciated to a certain degree, but I think it's still not been given its uh, due as far as it's sort of relegated to a quote-unquote native art form or an art form specific to a certain country. Mm. And I've often thought that if Indigenous art had never existed and then in New York in the 1940s or 50s, probably within the abstract expressionist movement, someone emerged who was painting in the same way Tommy Watson paints or Napananka paints, they would be held in the same regard as Mark Rothko or um, Jackson Pollock. Unbelievably so. Yeah, yeah. The, the work that I've seen just blows me away. It's, it's unbelievable and it, it's almost like it's, um, you're right, it, it's considered a, a native art or, yeah, it's, it's almost like it's... It's, it's, not, own, it's not put in the same category. It's its own as, category, yeah. which it shouldn't be. It should be bought within the contemporary Australian art scene. 100%. And it's strikingly original way of uh, representing the land and even, I mean, I, I still don't know how they have such a interesting and almost accurate topographical knowledge of the land given that, you know, they, they're not viewing them the land from aeroplanes uh, and it's just uh, the symbolism behind it is... Uh, so deep and interesting and nuanced uh, and most people are just me included uh, to a certain degree uh, just unaware of uh, the depth of how interesting it is yeah it definitely needs to be brought to the forefront and spoken about more and appreciated by western culture yeah yeah do you think you'll stay working in melbourne as an artist over the next 10 years i think so because um, you've got the freedom pending 
COVID. COVID, uh, you've sort of got the freedom to paint wherever you want and you've already been uh, represented internationally and at international art fairs. So do you feel a desire to go elsewhere? Uh, I was actually planning on moving to New York at the end of last year, in September 2020. And um, we got as far as speaking to the visa um, consultants or immigration people to move over there to New York. But um, COVID stopped that in its tracks and, um, yeah, we're we're stuck here for for the time being. The other idea, because I work um, in Richmond, in Cremorne, in in the city, the other idea I've had is actually moving out of the city into somewhere that's got more land and... More rural? Um, Don't know how, like an hour and a half out of the city at, at the most. And then building a, a house that has like a dedicated studio and living quarters. Are you thinking of anywhere specifically? Um, I mean, Red Hill. I, would, I was literally just about to say, ideal, I went to Red but, Hill recently. <clears throat> um, I went down there on the weekend to look at some of the the um, the land prices when I was driving past a real estate agent. It's pretty outrageous. That's bizarre. My, my mate's uh, girlfriend has a house down in Red Hill and we, we were there about three weeks ago and I was just... I'd never been before, but it's beautiful down there. Mm. If you get a nice, um, it's a pipe dream at the moment, but you get a nice block with a nice aspect, and you look out and you know, got a nice view and a big open studio and lots of space. Like, it, there's something beautiful about that living off the land, and which helps your art probably as well. Yeah, you know, still make trips to the city, it's an hour and a half away, it's not, not the end of the world. It was interesting with New York because New York over the last 20 years has obviously been uh, more and more gentrified and you always hear about, you know, the glory days of uh, Warhol's factory and Basquiat and Haring and all that bumming around New York when it was a lot more dangerous but a lot more cheaper and ostensibly had a better art scene because of that. Mm. And it'll be interesting to see whether as, I mean, it's kind of sad to say, but New York's going downhill uh, in a lot of ways at the moment sort of financially and, uh, I don't know what the opposite of gentrification is, but that's happening there. It'll be interesting to see if that reemerges as a hotspot for artistic for art, culture yeah. over the next five years or so. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. So um, I think the whole of America is kind of going a bit backwards at the moment. It's pretty crazy. What do you think of the what happened at the Capitol the other day? Probably not going to say. Right, just <laughs> too polarizing these these days. Yeah, have an opinion just, on it. Uh, I think, and I have a very I think I have a very balanced view. Um, I don't know. You look at look at one side of the, of the Democrats, and they're all like anything that any Republican says, you're a you're a demon and, or a Nazi, and vice versa. Mm. Like if you're a Republican and the Democrats say something, you you're completely left, and it's um, both sides have just lost the plot. I think yeah, there's a lot of lies and stuff that it's. How do you even tell? There's no good side to be on at the moment. No. Over there. But uh, I think Trump's just, he's, I never thought he'd be worse than his worst detractors said he would be. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, got pretty close to worst case scenario, but we'll see. It's just it's pretty, pretty depressing watching what's going on over there. Yeah. I think we can consider ourselves lucky that we're in a pretty good state at the moment with COVID and um, 
I was oh. speaking to my family. My dad actually lives in New York and I don't know if they have a full grasp on what it's like in Australia. Um, they said that there's some, some comments that they said that um, uh, what did they say? That we'll never be able to keep a lid on it, which um, they said I, that about Australia, uh, the COVID. And I, I tend to agree with what they're saying. I mean, there's to eradicate it worldwide is going to be almost impossible. I don't know how that happens, but my comment to them was I'd, I'd like to think the Australian government and what we have created here, also like New Zealand, we can keep a lid on what what comes into the country. Mm, we can get as close to an elimination Yeah, and, the, and their viewpoint from living in America with record numbers every single day, continuously breaking their own records for the number of cases and deaths. Like, Well, you know they're they, coming up on as many deaths as they suffered in World War Two. From COVID. No, I didn't. That's yeah. crazy. I think it was something like 450,000 military deaths in World War Two, and they're up to like 395,000 at the moment. Yeah, it's a lot. So, like, I think what they're experiencing versus what we're experiencing are two very different things. Like, we have cases under 50 Australia-wide. So, it's a very different thing. And I'd like to think we can contain what we have here and live a somewhat normal life until maybe the rest of the world... Sorts their shit out and yeah. gets vaccinated. It's just scary though because whether you like America or not, so much world peace depends on them carrying on as business as usual. Mm. And it's just, I mean, who knows what kind of moves are going to be played if America sort of devolves into civil war or what, whatever. But it's a, it's a spooky time. Mm. To say the least. It's all moving very quickly as well. Yeah. I feel like it's sort of just a snowball. Everything's just rapidly getting crazier and crazier. Uh, Well, thanks for coming on the um, podcast today, Tom. And again, thanks for the logo. um, Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Loved it, mate. So uh, we'll have to do this again soon and cheers. Maybe we'll book one in for um, before the next show. When that gets locked in. Yeah, absolutely. We can towards promote, the end of the year. And we can promote that as well. That'd be great. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, mate.